What does healing mean to you? That ability to go from self-pity and self-involvement to reaching out to work in the service of others, uh, that is true healing to me. So, Tony, uh, we're going to be interviewing Cam Stout. Cam. And I know Cam through the Stability Network. The reason I got involved with it is because it's focused on the workplace where I feel like there's a lot of stigma. People who are very talented but are known to have had a mental health struggle in their life, who have been in a hospital, take medicine, it is possible that they will be not the first one to get the next promotion, right? And the people in this organization want that to not be the case, that people who are willing to disclose and are willing to show that they are uh, taking the steps to have optimal health, regardless of their diagnosis, uh, are just as worthy of a promotion and reaching the upper echelons of whatever organization or business they're part of, right? Uh, the four key messages of the Stability Network, just to talk about this, uh, are one, mental health conditions affect us all. Two, mental health conditions are recognized as disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act and human rights codes in Canada. Uh, three, with the right care and support, recovery is possible. And four, the human and financial costs of not treating mental health conditions are very high. I stand by all of those statements, and I think that fourth one, I mean, in terms of like the stability network focused on the workplace, is really worth saying again, the human and financial costs of not treating mental health conditions are very high. And I think that is true as well of the persons we discussed with, with serious mental illness. The, the fact that they are in prison on the streets and not receiving good care is costing taxpayers and it's costing morally and financially mm -hmm. a tremendous amount. Yes. So Cam Stout founded Stout Heart Inc. with the mission to speak out about mental health conditions and addiction, embolden others to share their own stories, foster inclusion and nurture hope, and fight the stigma that keeps mental illness and addiction in the shadows of shame and denial. This was a great interview. Uh, Cam is a talker. Cam is, uh, I thought on the way over here of a way to describe it, and he's, he is possibly the kindred spirit of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> only it would be, uh, in Cam's case, it would be uh, a biker's guide to um, the mental health uh, universe. <laughs> and I think he'll appreciate that illusion, don't you think, Eric? I, yes, I do. <laughs> 
Cam Cam is awesome, and I'm so glad we got him on the show. He's been through some very difficult times you in bet. his life. You bet. And he, he has climbed the mountain metaphorically and also uh, physically on, on his bike up to some very high peaks after some very low lows. Cam is a fine fellow. We're grateful to have you on the program, Cam. It, I could talk to you all night and almost did. <laughs> <laughs> Quick note, during the interview, Cam refers to a SEAL team. SEAL refers to supportive, energizing, and loving. It's essentially an accountability team that helps him stay on track with his wellness. And he also talks about SEAL teams when he's doing uh, education. Cam Stout, the last time we were together, we were climbing... Coit Tower in San Francisco on a beautiful day. That was really a, a very special weekend for me, Cam. I'm glad we were able to spend time together and um, take advantage of the Stability Network and all the uh, great people who are wanting to bring dialogue around mental health more into the workplace and more into the public sphere. Thank you for joining us today. You uh, had a, a start at Berkeley as a shaggy Berkeley atheist. Yeah. I'm neither of those anymore, but I did, my father taught English at Cal Berkeley and I grew up in the sixties in that wild town that a lot of people still call berserkly and it still deserves that moniker. <laughs> I grew up there. Um, there, we were a very atheistic family. When we went to church, it was, you know, Christmas Eve generally. So I didn't really have faith for quite some time. Um, I loved Berkeley with a few exceptions. And one of them was my father's mental health conditions and his alcoholism. Mm. Those traits or whatever you want to call them, I'm not a um, geneticist, but those threads in his uh, genome and his family's genome are like a freight train through the family tree. Uh, yeah. My father lost his life to suicide 11 years ago and his brother, he had two brothers, one of his brothers took his own life many, many years ago. And I can remember sitting in the living room when I was about 10 at our house in Berkeley when um, dad's parents were there and they took the call that uh, Dickie had attempted and it was all sh put under the rug and very quiet, a lot of denial. So my father also uh, drank, although not, he, he was a high functioning alcoholic as I am. Um, so he was, he was one of the most, and uh, I'm now talking with about him a little bit more right off the top, but I think it, it fits here. He was a spectacularly good pro teacher. He won the distinguished teaching award at Cal twice, which is really unheard of. Uh, and that was wow. not just in the English department, but you know, as like this demon, you know, the, these, these demons that haunt us, those of us living with mental health conditions, he was a tortured guy. Yeah. I want to be clear, though. Dad was a loving guy. There was no abuse, no, no raised voices, nothing like that. It was just the pit of his depression that it was a bit like a black hole. It was pretty easy to go screaming right past the event horizon and, and down into its maw. And it was a scary place down there. You said, Cam, about your depressions that... Uh, Genetics often load the gun and external stressors can fire it. Um, flesh that out for us a little bit. 
Yeah, thank you, Tony. It's hard to parse out the causative factors uh, in a severe depression like mine. And by the way, about 16 million people in the country currently, according to the statistics that NAMI puts out, are experiencing such a such an illness. Um, there's no, I mean, you can you only need to look at our at our dad's side of the family to see that there's a real genetic marker for major depression, suicidality, and alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes doesn't need to look at this thing to understand that. But in my experience, at least, those genes can remain dormant. And for example, I went to, uh, when I was an undergrad at Princeton, I had definitely had some depressive episodes, small ones, but I was very happy there. And the external things in, in that life were very good. They were not the types of things that began to affect me during and after law school. That's when real external stressors, Tony, fired that genetic gun. So, Cam, your first uh, depressive episode was in the early 90s. Is that when you really started facing some of the biggest stressors of your young life? Yes. Uh, the primary one was work. Mm. I'd been through law school, and law school, at the best of times, is not exactly a super fun place. Uh, it, mm -hmm. the stats, and I speak with law, at law schools, I've spoken at Harvard, Stanford, and a couple of others, and I, I, I never want to tell the students what the statistics show, because there's really no reason for them to know them, although they probably do, but here they are. When students enter into law school, they're, uh, they have about the same rate of depression as the general populace, but it increases to the point where 40% uh, of graduating law students has some level of diagnosable depression, and which is probably why law school enrollment is, is dropping. But I would say I was in that group. Law school is super scary. And I won't go into the details of why that is, but the, the movie or the show, The Paper Chase, is pretty accurate, actually. Um, so that got me going in the wrong direction. And the stress of work was very difficult at my first law firm. Um, and then, you know, I started out at another firm, which was helpful, but, um, alcohol, it was every place, I mean, firm parties and client events, et cetera. Alcohol really is ubiquitous in, in the legal profession. In fact, a study came out in February of 2016, commissioned by the American Bar Association and Hazelden Betty Ford. And it found after an exhaustive survey around the country that one in five lawyers has a drinking problem. And I was one of those. And I mm -hmm. think we're pretty familiar with the vicious cycle of depression leads to self-medication with alcohol and it's a depressant which leads to less exercise and, and on and on you go. Hard to deal with that. And I wasn't able to exercise as much. And I had a very supportive family, but I, you know, I had a long commute. Um, being a lawyer is extremely stressful. It's a it's very um, adversarial profession. Yeah. You pick up the phone and it's probably likely going to be opposing counsel screaming at you for some perceived violation of the law or something. And it was always yeah. you know, every time the mail came, it was prior to email. So the main flurry of fresh hell was usually in the form of the mail. Um, some of our listeners probably don't know what that is. It's 
uh, paper that comes in a smaller piece of paper called an envelope. But uh, <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm glad I'm not practicing. You're dating much. yourself. Cam. <laughs> I know. I know. Cam, did you receive a diagnosis at that time? Well, there's the question. I was feeling so poorly, and it was inexplicable to me. And other people were telling me to get tough, that I had a great life, I should be feeling good, and I shared that bafflement. So I finally overcame the stigma, and I had some friends tell me, don't go see a psychiatrist. But I read a book called Listening to Prozac by Peter Kramer, and I read it on the ferry from uh, from my office in San Francisco over to Marin County, where we where we moved. And this book was really an epiphany for me. Reading about how folks had had their had had gotten back to feeling themselves again, taking this med. So I did go to a psychiatrist. I did get a diagnosis. I want to say around 1991. I had a great psychiatrist. I I'd, I'd not been in therapy before. He was really a surrogate father to me, and Good. he prescribed uh, a med that really after a while, uh, you know, after maybe two months, and some of these meds tend to take some time to, to become efficacious, you know, I began to look in the mirror and see myself again, and, and the world began to go back to Technicolor. It, it, it lost its sepia, its black and white look mm -hmm. that is so... Typical, you know, the sort of gray sludge of apathy and despair that, as I say in the book I'm writing, that really oozes into your skull. You say uh, that there were several people you've named in, in, in our notes that uh, have expanded your view of the symbiosis between your depression and your faith. Would you take just one of those persons and share a story that might help us connect with that? Jim Stump was really the person who brought me to Christianity and opened my heart to Jesus Christ. Jim, I, well, to back up a second, after I left the psych ward after two months at Alta Bates, I'm, the problem became, where does Cam go now? And this was a problem that my two sisters and my mother who are very dear to me, uh, struggled mm -hmm. with. Where do we where do we send Cam? He's not ready for prime time. He's not ready to go back to work. He's still really suffering. He's still having ECT. So they found a facility down in Palo Alto. This was 2013? Yeah, well, Cam. Was, yeah, the summer. Okay. So it was the late spring of 2013. And so they found a facility uh, down in Silicon Valley area. And I began to get better in the ECT began to help me, and I was on a new regiment of medications, and I was back on the bike. On January 1st of 2014, we sat around in the um, intensive outpatient program, IOP, that I was in, and we went around, checked in around the big table, and the question was, what are your New Year's resolutions? And mine was, I'm going to get back on the bike, and I'm going to climb Mount Diablo by the end of the year. And Mount Diablo is a big mountain <laughs> over in, uh, uh, in the East Bay, and that's uh, 3,800 feet. So it was quite a, it was quite a, a resolution to make, uh, but I'd done a ton of training back in the day. So I wanted to get back on the bike, and that was a really important part of my, of my recovery. Did you reach your goal of climbing uh, El Diablo? Si. 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 Yeah, I did. In fact, I have a picture of me at the summit. Anyway, having said that, so Jim was the campus minister to male athletes at Stanford, 
and he's a really evangelical guy in a, in a very uh, low-key way. And he has written a book called The Power of One-on-One, and that's his MO. He meets one-on-one, and he brought 40% of the football team at Stanford to Christ, uh, as I understood the stats. Wow. So I sat down with him, and he, he had an informal office at a, at a table in the sports cafe, which is near the tennis courts in the track field at Stanford. And he's just, this guy's just sitting there at this table. So I walked in and we chatted. And um, I really don't remember knowing what his deal was. And his deal was to listen to me. And he had a Bible open. (laughs) It was amazing to me because he would, and this happens in AA a lot, he would open to uh, a section of scripture and read it to me. And it was always right on point with what I was feeling. And so we met about mm-hmm. six times, and I looked forward to our meetings. And he finally said, after about six weeks or so, six meetings, Kim, are you ready to open your heart up to your savior, uh, savior Jesus Christ? And I just, I just freaked out. And I said, you know, I don't know why, Jim, but that's a really scare. I'm, you're freaking me out, man. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. he said, well, that's what. What year was this? Uh, this, this was 2014. 2014. Yeah. And so he said, Cam, not, do not worry about it. You know, this is, um, uh, you know, it's a question that I ask when I, I think the person I'm with is ready to, ready to answer it, but it doesn't sound like you are yet. So, you know, why don't you, you know, I had a Bible by then, um, a Bible that my grandmother um, gave my mom, my grandmother being a complete atheist too. I'm sure she just handed her the Bible and said, here, you take it. Um, but Jim said, you know, read these sections of the Bible. You should read some of, I can't remember what, what, but it was certainly some of, some of John. So I did, and I came back a couple more times. And Jim then repo, he re-posed that question. And I was still hesitant. And he said a sentence to me that I'll never forget. I mean, if I were writing this movie that I'm going to, you know, about my book that, where I'm going to be played by George Clooney, This would be one of the most important lines in the book, which was, Jim said, what have you got to lose? And it just struck me very deeply, and I'm not a hyperbolic guy, and I I don't hear voices in my head, but this was a really important concept to me. And the answer was, absolutely nothing. I have nothing to lose. (laughs) I have everything Mm -hmm. to gain. And that was really the start of my journey towards Christianity. I don't want to gloss over it. Uh, you know, you're talking about your your mother and sisters in 2013, really kind of surveying the situation, and it sounds like you'd really been in a very difficult <laughs> time of your life. You know, and, and you know what you were just speaking to was a lot of spiritual growth, meeting some great mentors. That's remarkable. At that time in 2013, did you feel like a couple of years later you would be able to get to where you were at? <laughs> that is such a good question. I'll try to answer it. No. <laughs> and I'll add a little, I'll add a little color to that. There is no scarier place that I've ever been by orders of magnitude than in a psychiatric ward. Yeah. 
I recently finished a chapter in my book about the electroconvulsive therapy. Sure. Would you share a little bit about that? We've never had a guest talk about that. Sure. There's a lot of stigma around ECT. It's been around since 1938. Um, Mm-hmm. It became more and or less and less barbaric as time went on, but it does right. not enjoy a very good reputation, although that's changing because it can be very effective. I'm not here to recommend any therapy to anybody, but it was I think it was very effective to me. Here's how it works. I was wheeled down. You know, this is in February of 2013. Usually ECT is a treatment of last resort when meds aren't working. Mm-hmm. Nothing seems to be working. And so it's time for the electrodes. When I admitted, I was living in a yurt in my cool mom's Berkeley backyard and I could barely get off the couch. And I interviewed my admitting psychiatrist who became a huge part of my team. I didn't know it at the time. And I asked her, you know, Dr. Post, what what was I like when I, I was admitted? Because I didn't really remember it. And she said I was one of the worst cases that she'd ever seen, that I was close to catatonic and that ECT needed to be started immediately. So I started a really aggressive course of it. And each day, and and I'm happy to send you this chapter from my book, but I'll summarize it in two minutes. Mm -hmm. Each day started with a really nice nurse coming to pick me up, up in the psych ward where I uh, shared a living unit with a uh, really desperate kid who was in the throes of schizophrenic psychoses. And she would put me in a wheelchair. I'm not sure why. Um, and take me down into the belly, into the basement of the hospital where the ECT facility was. And uh, I don't know if it's the stigma or what, but it was sequestered. It didn't have a sign on the door. All it said was, do not bring fragrances in here or something like that. So you go in there, small room. I guess they didn't respect HIPAA privacy because there were six hospital beds in there. And usually there were patients sitting in them, lying in them, waiting their turn to have the ECT treatment. So I'd sit mm-hmm. down in one of these hospital beds, and the nurses were fantastic and just could not be warmer in this cold little you know, windowless room. And yeah. uh, so the nurse to whom I was assigned, and I knew all of them by name, um, uh, would prep me as if I were going into surgery. You know, they give you uh, an IV, they set you up with a port for meds, they start giving you muscle relaxants because you're going to undergo in an, you know, in an hour or less, depending on how long it takes. Um, what they do is they, they wheel you into the ECT treatment room. It's a little shuttered room. They uh, explain the procedure and I ended up having 38 sessions, you know, about halfway through I could recite the, uh, uh, what we were going to do as well as they could, but they, right. they put, um, they rub your temples with alcohol and they put an electrode. If you're having bilateral ECT, as I did, they put electrodes on each temple and then, um, they give you general anesthetic through the port in your arm. And, um, I have rarely felt a greater sort of physical ecstasy than the two seconds when the, um, propofol, um, would go into my veins and put me to sleep. And um, in fact, I would joke after a while, once I got, I still had this sense of humor somewhere buried in there. Uh, but I would joke with the anesthesiologist and say, doctor, could, 
I've got a hundred bucks in my pocket. Could you just titrate that a little more slowly? So, uh, so that you can prolong this ecstatic feeling. And he would just say, no, we don't allow graft in Altamate hospital. And you know, the ceiling would whirl. And while I was asleep, uh, spoken like a true Berkeley. Totally dude. <laughs> Word. So when I was asleep, they would put, um, a, uh, piece of something in my mouth and then strap me down. And the reason is that when they fire the 250 volts of electricity through your head while you're asleep, it yeah. induces uh, a grand mal style seizure like an epileptic would, would experience. And, you know, if that voltage hit your heart, you'd be dead immediately. But the brain being the strange, unique uh, organ that it is induces a seizure and for reasons that are not really well understood um, it can act as a way of rebooting your brain and beginning to erode the depression and 15 to 16 i think that's about a standard number of sessions and as i mentioned i had more than double that because it just wasn't yeah uh, it wasn't working as quickly as everyone hoped i mark the time when i began the journey through this valley of the shadow of death and began to hike up the steep switchbacks on the other side, up back to the land of the living. Um, I marked the start of that journey on my 15th or so ECT session when uh, my favorite nurse, as I came in for her to prep me, as she'd done a number of times before, she said, you know, she's a really nice older um, uh, grandmother and, uh, she said, you know, Cam, this is the first time you've come into this place and sat with me that you have not talked about killing yourself. And I can see a real, the beginning of a hint of a kindling of a sparkle in your eyes that I've never seen before. And mm. I think, I think you're coming around now. I think this is starting to work. And she was right. Yeah. So that's what happens with DCT. I mean, you wake up with you wake up from the anesthetic just feeling like crap. I mean, you've just, you know, had your brain blasted and you're feeling right. woozy and sick from the anesthetic. Was this a daily or every other day? Yeah, it depended. Three times a week for a while because okay. things seemed so dire in my case. And even after I left Altivate's hospital in early April of 2013, I had moved down to Palo Alto to this facility I described before, but the ECT continued in Alta Bates. And so my mom, she would drive from Berkeley down to Palo Alto, which is an hour. She'd pick me up, drive me back up to Alta Bates, wait for me, which was a two-hour wait, drive me back down to Palo Alto because you obviously can't drive after an ECT session. And then she would drive back again. That's a work day. That yeah. is a work day. And... You know, one of the things I think sometimes we lose sight of is how difficult mental health conditions are on loved ones who are the caretakers. My mom really was effective negatively. I mean, you know, when you're a parent of a struggling kid, there's nothing that's viscerally worse than that. And it was very hard on her and we were always close and we're that much closer now. At the beginning of the interview, you talked about receiving the news when you were very young that your uh, uncle had had an attempt. 
and things were not spoken of in the family. So your your family background was one of, uh, you said, denial, you know, keeping things quiet. And now you are uh, very vocal. You, know, you, you look for opportunities to, to share your story. You're writing a book. Um, you're in mental health ministry. When did that really start to blossom? The public speaking happened actually in late 2013. I had taken a leave of absence from my law firm. I had just joined it um, in the beginning of 2012, and I had to take a leave in early 2013, obviously, as I got so desperately sick. Uh, mm -hmm. My mentor at that firm, who's still a very close friend, uh, was also in AA. And so he's an attorney. I'm an attorney. Attorneys in California uh, and a number of other states now are required as part of their mandatory continuing legal education so that they can stay in good standing with the state bar and their licensure. They have to take some mental health and substance abuse training, which is usually an hour uh, every three years, but it's a whole lot better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So this friend of mine in the firm said he was going to be giving what's called an MCLE talk in Los Angeles. And would I like to join him on the panel? And I'd been, you know, I'm pretty comfortable on my feet having been a litigator. and I'd been going to get some additional training just for the heck of it. I wasn't sure why um, in this organization called Toastmasters. So I said yes mm -hmm. to my friend. And. Uh, there I was down in L.A. in front of 200 people on a speaker's panel with him. I was scared. You know, everyone, they say that people would rather have their left arm bit off by a great white shark than speak publicly. But I'm really not like that. I, I really liked it from the start. At that point, did you share your diagnosis at that event? Yes, I was very open. I shared my story. And so you mark that as your coming out with the diagnosis? Well, coming out in the sense of talking to that group of people, but I didn't come out at that point. In fact, it took some time to do that because of the stigma. And I was you know, concerned that although I was feeling better than I ever had, by the time I started practicing law and being a mediator again, you know, I was worried that that stigma might negatively affect um, my ability to get hired as opposed to my ability to doing my job. Mm -hmm. So it was a coming out in a certain sense uh, and in, in other ways not. And in fact, I didn't authorize the Stability Network to post you know, my story and the set of stories that we have until frankly I'd figured out that God really wanted me to do that. Yeah. My, I really had a couple of very clear signals that God wanted me to share this story and keep doing it. And if it affects other aspects of your career, so be it. And I really picked up that cross, I think. I'm curious to know on a day-to-day day -day basis what you do to, to maintain your, your well-being. Well, I try to follow my own advice <laughs> that I give when I give talks because it's not just my story I talk about. You know, what are the ways of keeping these issues at bay or making your life even better? What are your what are your foundations of self-care? And I ask mm -hmm. myself that a lot and I try to practice what I preach so I can list them off for you, Tony. Yeah, I exercise as often as I can. I get on the bike sometimes, you know, if I am feeling down, it's not as if it's not as if I've been cured of these things. There is no cure. 
So there are times when I'm feeling depressed and uh, around two in the afternoon, uh, there a fork in the road uh, appears and one, one sign says, exercise, you lazy sod. And one says, take a nap, you're super sleepy. So I try to take the right fork in, in that road. And so I exercise a lot and I'm training for a big bike ride right now up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So that again, I think exercise, the studies are very conclusive that exercise can be as effective as the best antidepressants. So that's one. Mm. I start every morning with a prayer and uh, I let the we have a great yellow lab named Mo. She and I get up early. I let her out into the backyard and I stand on the deck and I repeat the same prayer pointing towards all four major points of the compass. And this is what I say. First, I say a prayer that the Lord would protect my two adult children. I then say a prayer that I sort of made up, which is good morning day. Lord, thank you for this day. May I do thy will today. And then I say Niebuhr's serenity prayer, which is such the hallmark uh, of AA. God, and I put in a please, God, please grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm -hmm. I have yet to find anything in life that that prayer doesn't apply to. And right. it's, mm -hmm. it's the wisdom part that's the hard one. I certainly have recruited a SEAL team. And what a huge blessing to have people who love you. So I have Dave, as I mentioned, I have my sponsor in AA. I have my kids and Laura, and I have a bike training guy, a guy who's been training me on the bike forever. Uh, he's part of that team. And I talk in terms of a SEAL team when I give talks to students, high schoolers, law students, etc. I've had people say, well, who should be on this team? And it's a delicate thing for me because family members are not always uh, appropriate people to be on the team because there are times when, given the dynamics of family, that sometimes family members can be part of the problem rather than the solution. And I've had a couple of kids come to me and say, thanks for letting me off the hook. I don't feel as, feel as guilty for, let's say, you know, not having my parents as a member of my SEAL team. And, you know, I have to be careful there. I'm not advocating for dropping them from the team. But um, mm -hmm. I think it's important that you you got to select a team. Let me say it this way. You have got to select a team whose members you would trust with your life. These are not Facebook friends. Right. These are not texting people. I mean, mm -hmm. these are people who have your back. And I love the armed forces idea of no person left behind. That's what we're talking about. These are the people who saved me from death when I was so suicidal. By the way, I never, just as an aside, I never had an attempt. Okay, mm -hmm. going down the list, Tony, and I'm almost done here. I do take my meds regularly every day. Um, a lot of, one of the bigger problems with stigma is that people, when they begin to feel better, sometimes or often stop taking the meds because they don't want to admit uh, that they're, as a friend of mine who's in the stability network put it, they don't want to admit their brains are broken. But I, I say a little prayer every time, every evening when I take those meds, that those meds are available to take. Mm -hmm. I say, God, thank you for the doctors and the scientists and the drug companies who have brought these to me. Mm -hmm. I share my story as much as I can. I think that is the absolute key to uh, eroding, chipping away at the monolith of, of mental 
illness issues. Um, it's got to be yes. done, I think, from a grassroots point of view. One of the things that attracts me to the Stability Network is we're all about sharing our stories with each other, with the public. I try to do it in any uh, setting I find myself in. I call this when I wear my heart on my sleeve, other people cry on it. And I mean that in a good way. Mm. They emote and they share their stories, whether it's theirs or loved one, family, somebody they know. Um, but so many people have issues with this. I mean, you only have to look at the statistics for about three seconds to get that, you know, what Robin Roberts says in her book, I think it's everybody's got something. Um, it's true. And it's become, I would say, guys, that one of the biggest blessings God has brought me is the is my story. Uh, someone asked me at this suicidality conference that I was in, you know, that I was, uh, spoke at at Denver last week, and they mm -hmm. said, Cam, if, you, if someone had handed you like the little red pill from the Matrix movie and said, this will keep you from, ha from being an alcoholic and from having this ghastly experience that's waiting for you um, uh, in, in the deep depths of, of depression, would you take it? And that's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the answer, and I'm not sure the answer is yes, I would. Because having gone through this, you know, really surviving this and coming out the other side, I really do feel like it's added a, a layer, a depth to me. Well, it's really focused your ministry, right? Yes. It's yeah. made you the man you are. I think in a lot of ways it has. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And it's, it's nice to share, and people are only going to find treatment and get past the stigma if they have a safe place to share their own stories. And I think that's what we're all about, you guys, me, lots and lots of other people who are doing that. What does healing mean to you? Healing means a couple of things to me. One of them is somehow having, you know, having a SEAL team that puts you, that gets you to the resources you need to feel better so that the, that your world goes from being black and white to technicolor again, so that you have the energy to start building your foundations of self-care. So that's the first thing. The next is to start along that path of self-care. So you're doing the things that I just described. And above all else is developing the a better way, I guess, of looking at life, of working in the service of other people, sharing stories, and being present and understanding that as you heal, um, it's going to be a real slow process. And, you know, the psychic wounds, the, the edges are going to knit together but there's always going to be a scar there, and it's always going to be there to remind you of how difficult life can be and how blessed it can be. And have this understanding that we all, I don't mean to sound like Yoda and the Force, but I really believe we are surrounded by some sort of love that we're trying to tap into. And we're trying to open doors to meet other people in that, in that circle of love. And that, to me, that ability to go from self-pity and self-involvement to reaching out to work in the service of others. Uh, that is true healing to me. Now you're at a place where you are really wanting to do full-time ministry and you're writing a book. When did you pivot to that? 
And, and how's it going? I'd say maybe a year ago, I pivoted to it more. I thought, you got to go for it. You've got to forget your financial issues, which are, I certainly have some, especially, you know, having been off the grid as a lawyer and a mediator for 18 months doesn't help at all. It's very hard to monetize. It's very difficult to make a living doing what I'm doing, uh, at least for mm -hmm. a while. And sometimes I feel like I'm paddling on the, near the crest of a really big wave on my surfboard. And I'm pretty confident mm -hmm. I'm going to catch that wave or the next one. But it's hard. Um, but I, nonetheless, I said, you know what? God is saying this is your calling. I didn't save you from suicide so that you could do anything but this. This is what I want you to do with the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Going well. Whenever I can give a talk, I'm as happy as I am, as I can be. I'm That's getting awesome. more and more uh, different assignments. Some of them are paid. Some of them aren't. I've started a uh, 501c3, a nonprofit called Stout Heart, Inc. I'm starting. Good title. Yeah, thanks. I'm trying to get, you know, I'm getting donations. I've got a lot of super generous, caring friends. And um, so I'm using some of those funds to finance talks that I give on a pro bono, non-paid basis. You know, I'm really trying to reach out to groups that aren't in a position to pay a speaker's fee. And uh, sometimes even colleges aren't willing to do that. And so I really want to, you know, I want to get in front of people as much as I can. And I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. I think I have something to give. So it's going okay. It's slow. You know, I'm, I'm still doing some legal work and mediation work, partly because I, I okay. like the mediation work a lot. There's a real spiritual element to mediation of bringing people who have been an incredible, you know, what fight to getting yeah. to yes and settling whatever their conflict is. I think it's going pretty well, and I'm sure loving it. Last thing, would you like to share any thoughts about the Stability Network? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. A friend of mine, and I can't even remember who it was, introduced me to Donna Hardacre and said that we sounded like kindred spirits. And I remember pulling over by the side of the road when I reached her, and we had just one of those really wonderful connection uh, conversations. And mm -hmm. she sponsored me for the Stability Network. And for the listeners who don't know, the Stability Network is uh, really a consortium of, we call ourselves leaders, about 100, and I think we're up to 140, Eric, somewhere in there, mm -hmm. around the country and in and a couple other countries, including Canada. And these are folks who, there are three criteria, at least when I joined, there were. One is to have an occupation. I think a number of us are or professionals, as it happens, mm -hmm. to be pretty effectively managing a significant mental health condition and, and, and or addiction, and the willingness to speak publicly about that. It really is turning into a bit of a speaker's bureau. We've got great training for giving talks. I've worked with John Capecci, mm -hmm. the author of Living Proof, who's a consultant to us and a great speaking coach. And he's Yes, he is. He's been a guy. He was available to me like the night before I gave a talk to like 500 human resources department at a conference in Florida. And I'd never done that kind of thing. And John just got me ready to give the intro. We mostly meet by telephone. We've had some great uh, conferences uh, and annual meetings. I went to one where some crazy um, hiker dragged me up to the top of Coit Tower <laughs> and uh and then we've, we're just now starting regional regions with regional leaders. I love the organization. It's really, I don't, I, I do too. I'm not sure there are any 
others really like it. To me, it's just another example of the incredibly important grassroots efforts that so many people are making in the world. And I, I remain convinced it's never, even under certain administrations that seem more progressive than others, I think it's going to be a grassroots thing. Uh, I think it's interesting, in fact, that we talk about coming out. You know, it's the same phraseology as with gays. And I and I don't speak for, for gays, lesbians, LGBTQ, but I think that it's gotten easier. I hope that's true anyway. Um, and I hope it's true that it's getting easier for folks like you and me, Eric and Tony, to, to do it too. Because it's been my honor to do that. And I intend yes. to keep telling my story as, as long as I can. Well, very good. I think that's a good place to end. Wonderful. Mr. Cam Stout. Yes, Cam, I really appreciate it. It was a total blast for me. I so thank you guys. Tony? Yes. Cam Stout was an excellent interview. Tremendous, Cam. Thank you for joining us. It's going to be hard to edit through this. A lot of good material, and we don't want to cut any of it, but hey... That's what we do. <laughs> Cam just makes me smile. You know, the guy has such a big heart, and he's been through so much, and he now just wants to, to give back. Cam is a lawyer by trade and recognizes that it's a very high-stress field, but also one where people tend to bristle at really sharing their vulnerabilities if they have uh, a diagnosis. And he has decided to walk confidently into those circles and speak his story as a way of opening up conversations and helping other struggling lawyers to seek help and make the changes they need in their lives to to overcome maybe some very hidden issues in their lives. It doesn't surprise me that, that Cam is trained as a, in the legal profession. He's very articulate, very well-spoken. Um, but it's also true that he's seen uh, a lot of ups and downs, and as such, he's gained wisdom that uh, goes beyond the knowledge that you have just in the legal uh, sphere. I was just impressed. The, the level of detail where he can share uh, an experience like we were talking earlier about having ECT, electroconvulsant therapy, um, you know, I mean, it's so vivid. And having had ECT myself, I mean, it just really took me back. And I was sitting here with Eric, you know, shaking my head yes. And, you know, I I think it, he was right on the money. And for someone who hadn't had that, I think he really depicted a scene. I really appreciated that. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think it was very powerful. That's one of those things you hear about ECT, and it's very hard to wrap your head around like what's actually happening. And he really painted mm -hmm. that picture well and spoke very highly of the nurses. And yeah, he did. You know, he, he painted a, a very accurate picture. It, you know, the, you see, again, we see a movie like One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and you, I mean, it's like Frankenstein bringing the monster alive. Sure. And, you know, it's really not that bad. It, it's it's an aggressive form of treatment, the last-ditch effort for many of us. I've read where ECT is starting to gain some momentum as mm -hmm. a viable treatment option and mm -hmm. has been getting some good reviews from, you know, research institutions. It's something yeah. that we need to continue to I'll never forget, brief story, I was yeah. in uh, 
Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in Manhattan, and there was a woman, an Orthodox Jewish woman, Hasidic, a mm. picture of health in her mid-80s. And I got to talking to her, and she comes in like every six months to have an ECT uh, little tune-up, she called it, because wow. <laughs> she, she battled uh, de- depression. It's mostly used for chronic depression, mm-hmm. and she wanted an active lifestyle, so she would come in, have her round of six treatments, exercise in the exercise room, and it was like, that was part of her therapeutic yeah. method. It can be effective. Didn't work for me, doesn't work for everybody. One of the things that he touched on a number of times, speaking about people in his life who've made a big impact, who've really supported him along the way, helped him on his faith journey. He talks about uh, a SEAL team, S-E-A-L, stands for Supportive, Energizing, and Loving. Having these SEAL members in his life help him to be accountable, uh, help him to have a support group to to lean into whenever he's struggling, knowing there are people he can be transparent with and get honest feedback. And I think we all need that. And I, I'm glad that he was able to talk about that and also illustrate some people in his life who, who are on that team. Yeah, I think accountability is so important for all of us, isn't it? And seeing um, that you have people who don't necessarily see things your way, but are watchdogs over uh, an aspect of who you are. Mm-hmm. And he seems to have a very uh, well-rounded view of who those people yeah. are in his life. Tony's on my SEAL team. Hey, ditto. <laughs> who else do you, yeah. well, you don't have to name names, but in, in that uh, in that realm of su- supportive, energizing, loving, and, did you put and there as a SEAL? Yeah, that's the and. Seriously? Hey. A is and. I thought it was like affirming. And loving. Why would you waste a whole letter on and? Because <laughs> that's only really three, only three things. Okay, so three things. Supportive, energizing, love. Yeah, I, I have a pastor on my team, um, uh, and you, my friend. Um, I think certainly if you're married, your wife or husband, sure. your spouse, a colleague at work. Uh Eric has professional workplace and shared uh, his diagnosis story with with some mm-hmm. colleagues. Or right. I think anyone who can be um, involved in monitoring, but kind of encouraging your in your in your journey. I think when you think about it, a lot of us have people who, who fit that mold. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mr. Stout. Yes. Hope to see you soon. In the coming year. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. So I go... 
try. You should not. Wow. Well, I thought it was. Uh, I haven't done a Yoda voice in a while. <laughs> Yours is good. I'm gonna mm, accept that. Do or do not. Yeah, there is no one. try. <laughs> mm. 